Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Bob McGee talks about Ebbets Field, the iconic home of the Brooklyn Dodgers in Crown Heights. It's been 63 years since the baseball team left for Los Angeles, but for many of a certain generation, the wound is still open. An HBO documentary released 50 years after the crime shared a popular local joke with the nation. You're in a room with Hitler, Stalin, and the Brooklyn Dodgers owner, Walter O'Malley. You got two bullets, what do you do? Simple, the true fan answers. O'Malley gets both. The problem, as McGee writes in his book, is that the Brooklyn Dodgers were a religion, and for those who bought into the faith, Ebbets Field was a holy place. Here, the author of The Greatest Ballpark Ever explains why. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. It was a mysterious photograph of an old Bishop's Crook New York lamppost shot from the ground up at a 60-degree angle. Its decorative flourishes ended in a large glass globe, which poured forth a soft yellow glow rather than today's harsh blue-white fluorescence. It looked to be an overcast day, but the framed image might have lied, considering it was from an unidentified photograph roughly three decades old. In the background was a wooden wall that seemed to be about 10 feet high, the kind that typically surround construction sites. On it were posters, Kennedy for President, the street signs off the stanchion, Bedford Avenue, Montgomery Street, Ebbets Field, or what was left of it by 1960, a wooden fence with posters fronted by a streetlight surrounded by sky. The picture hung on a wall in a pizza joint in San Francisco, memorializing a place 3,000 miles away. The image was likely to generate only a casual glance from the scores of eyes passing over it. A handful of people at best might get the message. Yet for those who knew, the recognition was kinetic, like a wrecking ball from history landing at your feet. The Dodgers only played at Ebbets Field, a few blocks east of Flatbush Avenue in the Botanic Garden in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, for 44 years, between 1913 when ball club owner Charles H. Ebbets opened the place, and 1957. But the pantheon of characters that populated Ebbets's acres in those years paraded across the pages of American literature, and not just sports literature, mind you. There was a mythic heroic aura surrounding these Brooklyn treasures, the team, and the field they played upon. Ebbets Field Alive teemed with people, the colors of an artist's palette arrayed around its outfield walls. A bustling Brooklyn neighborhood beckoned just over the top of the right field fence on Bedford Avenue, where a cascading home run ball occasionally stopped traffic, children scrambling in its wake. It was a ballpark established with knit-together parcels, They'd been surreptitiously purchased by intermediaries with no awareness of their intended 
end use, if only because the information could have provided those selling with an ability to name their price. But ultimately, what connected the surrounding neighborhoods to the ballpark and its team was an intensity and passion for baseball that has never been seen before or since. After two pennant-winning teams played on the grounds during Ebbets' first eight years, the ball club settled into a near 20-year pattern of complacent, if not downright abysmal play. Only a couple of years gave exceptions, but on Saturdays and the holidays and Sundays after the Blue Laws were repealed in 1919, the legions came, often jamming the stands with overflow crowds behind outfield ropes, a now forbidden practice. In the decades since Ebbets was wiped from the American scene, it's been a name uttered at various junctures when plans for and construction efforts on new stadiums proceed, but not because anyone would ever want to build a ballpark the same way. Too many things were wrong with Ebbets Field to make it a paradigm. Yet a score of aspiring successors have nonetheless presented themselves, whether in Baltimore, Denver, San Diego, Pittsburgh, or San Francisco. The objective is always the same, to recapture its intimacy and the rollicking pride that gave it such a wonderful sense of place. Ebbets Field created an alchemy that married the beauty of its architecture to that of the game and the grid of the cobblestone streets around it. The green symmetry of the diamond collided into the asymmetry of the concrete, metal, and wooden fences and barricades around it. The result was an element as intrepid as the outside world that it walled off. In another place, it could be thought of as an escape or diversion. But Ebbets Field was an immersion. The dramas spawned were recited with greater fervor than the litanies on the Sabbath in the borough of churches. In 1931, it underwent significant renovation, the double-deck stands were extended from just beyond third base further down the line into left center and center field to create more seating. The new stands reduced the distance from home plate to the fence, the stands meeting Bedford Avenue in an angled corner in the deepest recesses of right center field. This modified the field and created the so-called bandbox that remains beyond the ken of today's more modern imitative ballparks. The fans eventually took to calling the players bums, but they were always our bums. On this diamond, where anything could happen and often did, no team's lead was safe, least of all if the visiting club was playing against the Dodgers' prodigious lineup in the early or late 1940s or in the golden years of the 1950s. But mostly because of Ebbets' peculiar design, its odd right field fence, a jutting scoreboard with angle sides, and the right field wall with its slanted lower half. If the ball hit the fence, it fell straight down. If it hit the concrete wall hard enough, it careened back toward the infield. If the ball hit at an unanticipated angle around the scoreboard or in the deep right center field triangle corner, it could create quite an escapade for the outfielder. While incredulously observing one afternoon's events, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the longtime baseball commissioner, likened the park to a pinball game. And so it was. The result made perfect sense for children and adults alike. We lived and died with the Robins and the Dodgers as both kids and adults, one fan said, and to this day there is a great void in me over that. I can feel for those fans in other cities who also lost their teams, but I don't believe their hurt can ever closely compare to ours in Brooklyn. It was at Ebbets, of course, that a lanky young slugger named Floyd Caves Babe Herman doubled into a double play as one of three Dodgers to arrive on third base at the same time 
on a summer afternoon in 1926. It was at Ebbets that New Jersey native and Cincinnati Reds pitcher John Vandermeer pitched his second consecutive no-hitter at New York City's first Major League night game in 1938. And it was at Ebbets in 1941 where catcher Mickey Owen dropped the third strike that should have ended the fourth game of the World Series with the Dodger victory, which instead served as a catalyst for a four-run Yankee rally and critical Dodger loss. It was at Ebbets that Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947, and it was here that months later, Dodger pinch hitter Cookie Lavagetto, two outs, bottom of the ninth inning, broke up what would have been the first World Series no-hitter, hitting a fly ball off the wall, driving in the tying and winning base runners who had reached base courtesy of Yankee pitcher Bill Bevins's walks. Nine World Series were played at Ebbets Field, certainly far fewer that were seen uptown with the Giants at the Polo Grounds or the Yankees over at Yankee Stadium. But volume of championship jewelry and pennant flags has more to do with teams and annals and less to do with proximity to the action and the overall experience. For those who traversed New York's boroughs to watch baseball in these bygone days, the assessment was consistent. Ebbets Field was the greatest ballpark ever. Yes, the seats were small, the aisles narrow. Cans and bottles occasionally turned into missiles. The air was said to be charged, but nowhere were fans as close to the field. It wasn't merely the excitement of being there. It was the significance of being a part of something larger, of having a great unified presence and a collective pride in where and who you were, even while sitting with so many who are so different from you. Ebbets Field was at once a point of arrival and a spontaneous explosion of calibrated tension and fun. And if the results at the end of an afternoon or evening sometimes brought despair, what better pan to struggle could be offered than the dream that someday, some elusive day, the sweetness of total victory would ultimately be yours. Brooklyn fans were said to know baseball better than any others in either league, as if it were bred in the bone. In a manner of speaking, it was. Baseball's roots in Brooklyn stretched back to before the Civil War, when some 70 baseball clubs were here. By comparison, across the river in New York, there were only 25. Brooklyn stood atop the baseball world as champions of the National League in 1890, and again in 1899 and 1900. Those triumphs were before the advent of World Series play in 1903. Once that institution established the acknowledged supremacy of the victor, it became Brooklyn's magnificent obsession. The great day eventually arrived, even if Brooklyn's finishing touches on the 1955 World Championship were seen to in the Bronx. The Duke, Pee Wee, Jackie, Campy, Gill, Scooge, and Nuke had finally done it with a little help from Sandy Amaros and Johnny Padres, while another Sandy was a legend in waiting. It unleashed an outpouring of celebration in the Dodgers' home borough on a day when Ebbets Field was otherwise relatively quiet, serving only as a staging ground for the team bus on the way to and from its crucial appointment up at Yankee Stadium. No matter, Brooklyn was now the official capital of the baseball world, as every Dodger fan who lived there and elsewhere knew it should rightfully be. It should then come as no surprise that it was thought unconscionable when the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles after the 1957 season, with Ebbets Field, their citadel of struggle, unceremoniously deserted. Owner Walter O'Malley, who made an initial investment of $83,333, 
for an 8.33 percent share in 1944 and consolidated his control of the team in 1950, was the sole executor of that decision for which he is reviled to this day. O'Malley noted one critic bore a resemblance to the caricature of capitalism in a labor cartoon with enormous girth, jowls, and an effete cigarette holder. But his intellectual assets were ample, even if the ends to which they were employed were suspect and his manner often cunningly devious. Quote from Time Magazine, part leprechaun and part literal-minded lawyer, he disconcerts friends with a Groucho Marxist air of insincerity, yet he walks among foes with the grave and wary eyes of an honest man lost among a legion of pickpockets. O'Malley wanted a new ballpark for his team, but over the years failed to secure the site he desired in Brooklyn at the junction of Atlantic and Flatbush Avenues. Between 1903 and 1953, all of Major League Baseball's franchises had stayed in the same locales, but in the three years between 1953 and 1955, no less than three struggling franchises moved. First, the Boston Braves to Milwaukee, a switch denounced during spring training in 1953, then the St. Louis Browns to Baltimore, where they became the Orioles in 1954, and finally the Philadelphia Athletics to Kansas City in 1955. And so O'Malley threatened to move, announcing during the summer of 55 that he was scheduling seven games in Jersey City the following year as a warning to New York City for its civic inaction. The notion of Brooklyn without the Dodgers was unthinkable. They were the most profitable franchise in baseball. People couldn't believe that O'Malley would do it. Other teams were in bad straits, but not the Dodgers. But by 1957, everyone believed the talk was more than talk. Politicians came and went from their secret meetings, letters were exchanged, committees were formed. When Philip Wrigley and O'Malley exchanged notes at the baseball writers' dinner in February of 1957, agreeing to swap the Cubs' Los Angeles Angels minor league franchise for the Dodgers' Fort Worth minor league franchise and made the announcement public, it amounted to handwriting on the wall. The Dodgers would have rights to the Los Angeles territory. As the weather warmed, Keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn rallies were held. Buttons appeared on shirts and lapels. At Ebbets Field, the season began. But the weight of truth deadened the air. In June, Brooklyn Congressman Emanuel Seller convened his antitrust subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee, querying O'Malley and National League President Warren Giles, among others. More obfuscation. When Southpaw Danny McDevitt took the mound to pitch a masterful 2-0 shutout, against the Pittsburgh Pirates on September 24, 1957, in what turned out to be the ballpark's last major league game, President Eisenhower was sending troops down to Little Rock, Arkansas to enforce federal orders to desegregate the schools 10 years after Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball on Ebbets Field with Dodger President Branch Rickey as architect and advocate. The battle for assimilation that had been waged in the social laboratory that was Brooklyn had moved to another stage. The rendering of a malevolent ball club owner who failed to see decent measure of his investment as a public trust instead of a private opportunity remains painfully clear. It was O'Malley's and only O'Malley's decision, said Brooklyn and later Los Angeles Dodger Vice President Buzzy Bavesi in 1994 about the move. Everybody else was hoping something could be worked out. 
He borrowed the money from the Brooklyn Trust Company to buy the team, the nickels and dimes of Brooklyn depositors, said baseball historian Tom Knight. And then he moved the ball club out of Brooklyn. Forget the revisionists who say the intransigence of Robert Moses or the dithering of Mayor Wagner were responsible for the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. O'Malley vacillated on the favorable terms that he needed to get a site. Robert Moses didn't trust him. O'Malley, as the venerable sports writer Leonard Coppett noted, did all that he could to keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn except one thing. He didn't offer the team for sale. If he didn't think he could make it, he should have offered the team for sale. The 30-year-old photograph in the San Francisco pizza parlor captured both the vestige of an older New York and the avarice that destroyed it, an image poised on the precipice of a new age. In the turbulent decade that followed, with street riots, political assassinations, and a television war, beliefs in which America felt most secure, among them the idea of extended kinship, inspired by the likes of Ebbets Field itself, were subject to alteration, if not downright destruction. That no tangible shred of Ebbets Field remains where it stood is an insult to history. Whether between the chalk lines or outside them, Ebbets Field, both as historical institution and as symbol, with all the commitment between it and its community, offers more lessons for baseball and America in the 21st century than the sentiment it evoked in the 20th. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone. <laughs>